Hello and welcome to the Andyplex, the show where we talk about movies with creatives. I'm your host, Andy Majorano, and this is episode 27, Blue Thunder and British Lightning. Joining me today to talk about the 1983 underrated action gem starring Roy Scheider and Malcolm McDowell, Blue Thunder, is screenwriter, film buff, and now podcaster, Phil Gawthorne. Phil is an immigrant story, coming to L.A. from the U.K., and I can't imagine L.A. without him. Please check out immediately after this, Phil's new action movie podcast, Die Hard on a Blank. I have Phil to thank for being my first guest on the Andyplex, and in episode one, Foggy Days, we talked about John Carpenter's The Fog. Phil helped shape my formula for the show, and it's an honor to have him back. Welcome, Phil. Thank you so much for having me back. It, it is really cool, you know, that it's uh, it's been three years, and, you know, it's lovely to hear that that was, uh, helped, uh, you know, create this this project, and, and uh, the wheels come around because now you've inspired me to... Uh, to go into the podcasting world myself, so um, yeah, it's all uh, it's all cyclical. This is so cool. Um, I'm brimming at the seams right now. I don't even know where to start because I'm so excited and so pumped to have you back in my apartment. You are a celebrity in my world and my circle, and a big fan. I'm so glad I met you at the underwater premiere at the end of 2019. So glad I went. I almost didn't go. And my buddy John Gallagher, who was in the movie, invited me, and I was in an Uber on the way home from the airport, and I saw a poster for Underwater, and I texted John, and he said, what are you doing right now? And I was like, oh my goodness, um, I'm in an Uber, and I'm kind of gross from flying all day from, from Delaware, so I'm a, little, uh, I'm a little out of it. And he's like, come to my premiere at the Alamo Draft House, downtown LA. And I did, and then there was the after thing, and then there was the after after thing. And your buddy, Will Eubank, the director, was there. John was there. Uh, and I brought my buddy, Tony, with me. And I wore my uh, Thing shirt. And you zeroed in on my uh, The Thing, the movie The Thing, the 1982 John Carpenter classic with Kurt Russell. And uh, the rest was history. And we became fast friends. And we did the episode Foggy Days. And, and yeah, that was episode one. And this is episode 27. And John so. was on the show, too, wasn't he? Uh, John was Shining. on the show, yeah. yeah. Shining podcast. Yeah. Amazing episode. I highly recommend everybody to check out. It was particularly an incredible deep dive of you and John uh, on on The Shining. Was that episode three or four? You know, I think that was up to 11 by then. Oh, was it? Oh, I was wow. pretty quick in the beginning yeah. when we were locked down. I, I was way up. My job was, uh, on the, was on the on the fritz, and I was hanging out in my apartment in my pajamas making podcasts pretty regularly. So, But yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and be sure to check out Foggy Days if you haven't. I want to go a little bit into you and what you have going on. I don't want to retread too much territory from Foggy Days, but you're a screenwriter and you came to LA with stars in your eyes and you wanted to write and write film. I came film. to LA. I literally came to LA with two suitcases and a Captain America frisbee. <laughs> uh, and, Solid vibranium. Uh, vibranium. And, and, and stumbled my way through. Uh, and you know they haven't deported me just yet i've been here in about nine years now so um, in <laughs> so far so good beginnings um and uh yeah it's in you know the la of it all is interesting as it pertains to this movie i don't, I don't want to jump ahead but there is this movie that we're going to talk about is is an la movie in the in in the sense that it captures the essence of the city and uh, it's it's one of the reasons I really love this movie because I do have a I don't know LA I really love this city and the relation my relationship with it's kind of deepened and changed and you have your ups and downs with it but recently over the last couple of years 
you know, as things have been crazier and crazier with COVID and the business and you're sort of, you know, you're at those kind of different stages in life. But I, 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 about a, six months ago, I was just driving around downtown and I just was thinking like, man, I love this city. You know, I really do. Yeah. And still, even after even after nine years, and this film is almost like a love letter to to the city it, from a, from a literally from a unique angle. In the it really is. I just rewatched it myself, and I you recommended this movie about a year or so ago to me. I watched. I think you actually mentioned it when we first met, and then I finally saw it, and now this is my second go on it, and it's one of those movies that we just have to pump out and have to let people know that it's just, it's so fantastic. But was it, was it Blue Thunder that made you want to come to LA? I mean, was that kind of for your origin story's sake? Was I, it? I, I, to be honest, it was actually Drive kind of like drive. Uh, sealed, sealed the deal for me because that, that movie came out a year before I was like planning to, um, to move here and it kind of became my style bible for life. But I, I, at that point, I was a big fan of Blue Thunder, and there's just something about the the vibe of LA and the light, literally the light. This, this is a movie that's full of amazing sunsets, and my favorite, probably my favorite thing in cinema is a helicopter cutting across the LA sunset, you yes. know, or any sunset. But uh, so, and if that's if that's your jam, then this is the movie for you. And yeah, so it's definitely the movie for me. Oh, it's just such a it's such an action romp. It's such a, it is a very LA movie. It's beautifully shot. I mean, the sequences are incredible. I'm actually like kind of blown away how they got away with as much as they did. And it just looks so real to yeah. me. It's it, another reason why I think this movie is special and important. And in the kind of post Top Gun Maverick uh, world that we're in now in, in with cinema, that a movie that's kind of almost sort of rebooted cinema to some extent because now that was it's such a giant success that i think it has made people think about what our audience is excited about what is going to make people go to the theater and have a theatrical experience and for me i was so pleased at the success of that movie because it was in camera action mm. as opposed to a green screen you know uh set and and you can always you always get some sense of the the ersatz nature of of uh, just how you know the sort of uncanny valley of it you know of when things when action is all computer generated and you and there's a sort of numbness that comes to it but it was such an important thing I think for the business that um, Top Gun Maverick did did the kind of numbers that it did and I think it's interesting because if you trace back uh, some of the lines I would say the Blue Thunder was almost kind of um, walked so that the original Top Gun could run or fly and so that in, in, in turn paves the way for, that. for uh, Top Gun Maverick because this movie has some of the most unbelievable in-camera aerial photography and action sequences that you will ever see. So if you're a fan of Top Gun Maverick and that kind of vibe, then please like get, get find Blue Thunder however you can and get, get involved uh, with it because it is just to me like this weirdly slept on like why is nobody talking about blue thunder 24 7 other than me you yeah know? because <laughs> my thesis for this whole thing was why i wanted to talk to you about it and I, I did actually briefly mention it when we had the first episode about the fog my thesis about this is that this is the most underrated action movie of the 1980s wow that is very high praise and i i might have to agree with you because 
you folded me and thank you for including me in it. I hadn't heard of it, and I love Roy Scheider. I um, I, I think he's a, a legend. Uh, Daniel Stern, whom we always talk about this time of the year with Home Alone, and uh, he's great in it. Uh, Malcolm McDowell, and um, it's it's just got some great performances all around, and everyone's great in it, and it, it opens up so many doors of just the sheer action is so good, but it also continues the conversation about, and I know that's one of the reasons we want to talk about it. It continues the conversation about technology and its use. Is it ethical? Is it right? And I got to say, this time around, um, I looked up John Badham, and in the same year he put Blue Thunder out, he put out a movie called War Games. Yeah. Which. Hell of an 83 for. What a year. Mr. Badham. And they actually replaced um, Martin Brest on War Games uh, at the last minute, who, oh. who was. Uh, yeah, he replaced him, and then Martin Brest went on to make Beverly Hills Cop. And, the rest is history. Okay. So that was kind cool. of partly, I think, why he had these two big movies um, in the same year. But he is a very interesting director if you look at his, um, uh, you know, the totality of his filmography. He's made some quite, uh, he's quite an eclectic filmmaker. Yeah. But I think he was like the perfect, and this is something I, I, you know, if I if I may, if I just lean in. Uh, Go ahead. talk about this for a second. Lean away, it, sir. It kind of... Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about why I think this film is also very interesting if you zoom out from it because it's it's sort of it takes place almost at the the cultural intersection of the 1970s and the 1980s mm -hmm. meaning that it to your point about the themes of it there it, it's it's indebted to the paranoid conspiracy thrillers of the 1970s I think you know the post Watergate um, mm. you know uh, deep suspicion of government deep suspicion right. of the conversation power. I thought about a lot the conversation 100% very much so Parallax View Parallax Three View Three Days of the Condor oh, yeah. you know all of those kind of um, paranoid 70s thrillers mm -hmm. yet in John Badham's hands he's the perfect person to take that kind of material and um, make it palatable for a, for a more commercial audience in the more optimistic Reagan 80s and, but I think what is so interesting about this film is it, it, it has its cake in, and eats it because it is critical of this this uh, piece of machinery, this the, the Blue Thunder helicopter that is uh, so integral to this to the film. And just to place that in context, the film is about um, a uh, a sort of weaponized police helicopter um, that is has so many surveillance capabilities and weapon systems that it is almost potentially a bridge too far in terms of state state power too much and power. control over the citizenship and invasion of privacy and we, the story essentially goes into a, a government conspiracy as do they want to use this mm -hmm. um uh the, this this helicopter to, as a demonstration of um government power but what is so, I think, so adroit about the film and what Badham's, Badham's kind of um, commercial instinct is that, it has, it, as I say, it sort of has its cake and eats it because it, the film frightens us with, with this machine's capabilities, but then it, then it allows the hero to unleash those capabilities in a way that the audience can embrace. And that is and such get a behind, skillful yeah, exactly. thing to do because the whole film, the, this, this, this helicopter is kind of the villain of the piece, yet at the same time it becomes... The horse that our hero rides, you know, oh and this kind of thing. So it's something uh, that is just very, very skillful. So I think Badham 
um, just had that knack for pop, you know, popcorn commercialism. But at the same time, this film has quite deep resonant themes that are so contemporary in the, in this age when we're talking about invasion of privacy and the commodification of our private lives and our private data and our private information is one of the most, I think, substantial issues that we're dealing with and trying to figure out as a society because every yeah. time you click on any website it's tracking go cookies accept all or do you want to fill out a 10 page form to not <laughs> accept all right and right. we're just in this age of like oh gosh the convenience of so fine we're just slowly fine, selling fine. I don't, have, I don't have time to not accept and i gotta move on and they get us they get us at every turn there's a there's an alexa uh, echo dot sitting right next to us right now phil probably hearing all this Yes, I'm sure um, I'm on a watch list already for, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, any kind of anti, uh, anti-authority uh, statements that may have been, may have been made. Um, but, yeah, but here so, we are going on 40 years old, uh, you know, filmed and it looks like the end of yeah. uh, 81 uh, going into 82 and then it came out in 83. And like you said, it's, it's, it could have come out two years ago and exactly. been in the current conversation. Exactly. And that's not always... You know that's that's not always the case, and yes, as it approaches its fortieth birthday, this film couldn't be more um, relevant. At the same time, it's just a, one of the most entertaining, exhilarating so action movies. And incredible. You know, as I say, I sort of feel like this is it is the most underrated action movie of the eighties, in my opinion, because when we talk about the action movies of the eighties, the conversation usually revolves around. Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and maybe First Blood or maybe 48 Hours, which is really more of a sort of thriller, a body movie. Obviously, Lethal Weapon is too. But typically, um, it, 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 those are the ones, those are the kind of tent poles that we think of. And this film never seems to get a look in. And to me, it's become more and more relevant with every, with every passing year. And I just want to get the word out about it because I, I just feel like I'm just so passionate about this movie. I just love it so much, you know. Yeah, uh, it is. It's so entertaining. And when you think about it, you just think of a fun helicopter action movie. But Michael Crichton said a good story should be the sugar-coated pill, where it's sugar-coated, but there's always a nougat of message. And, you know, we're filmmakers and film crafters, and we study film. And the things that resonate the most are not just in their entertainment value, but in what they're telling us. And I think you nailed it when you said it walks the line between the two so well. And it's, it's so fun. And then you do get this message and you do get this probing the kind of relationship between technology, weapons, uh, and power. And if you look at war games even with uh, Batam, and it's funny, I didn't realize Batam came in late because it seemed so, so thematically similar in you know, technology running our, our nukes and our defensive systems across the world and yeah. you know, surrendering to these computers that are on the rise. And, you know, the fact that the, the Blue Thunder helicopter had a modem in it, I mean, that was so high-tech. I mean, right. obviously now, you know, everything has a modem in it. There's a suspicion of technology and its weaponization by the government in, yeah. in, both, in both movies and, and uh, yeah. a sort of a critique, you know. Um, at a time when not many people were, in the 80s, as critical, I think, of the government in mainstream movies. You know, they tended to be... It was just a different era. It was it was sort of less questioning, I think, than the post Nixon seventies in the in the Reagan eighties at that time. Now we look back on it with a probably more critical eye, but I think at the time, you know, again comparing this to Top Gun, and I love Top Gun and I love Top Gun Maverick, but um, it that is a very that is not criticizing in any way 
um, militarism or or you know the military industrial complex. Right. It, it's a total celebration of it. Now I'm I'm not here to critique Top Gun because I absolutely adore it. Huge fan here. Did a, did a podcast sort of on it. Contextualizing some of the, the, I think it is. Absolutely. I think it's kind of interesting that Badham made these two movies kind of back to back that yeah. are looking at the, these issues in with it with a sort of critical eye and but also in a kind of humanistic way as well. Yeah, very human. Is cool. And and then Short Circuit. Again, which is also which is very about, similar. Uh, you know, we forget Themes. that it starts out short circuit. Is a is has He's a, a scene weapon. that yeah, yeah, it's very similar. Got the to laser. The, 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 there's a weapons testing um, like demonstration, which also happens in Blue in Thunder. Blue Thunder. I know when I was watching Blue Thunder just now, I was like, my God, there's that short circuit theme. Yeah, and 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 of course, short circuit again is much more short circuit, much more lighter, more family right. oriented movie. Or children I absolutely oriented. Yeah, fucking love by the way. And Amazing the sequel too. I actually I saw two before I saw one, and I've probably seen two more. I actually think two is is a superior is a superior film. I might agree but, with you there. Um, it, there's actually a lot of interesting themes about that that resonated with me because it's it's kind of uh, this might sound a bit silly sort of talking about uh, <laughs> short circuit two. This is this a safe way, space, Phil. You can but, um, say whatever you want. That was a story that was actually kind of it resonated with me because it was actually sort of an immigrant story. It's oh. about him trying to to figure out his place as an outsider, wow. and it touches and it ends with him getting his um, citizenship, citizenship and getting oh recognized. Yeah. So for me, when I was a kid, of course, none of that meant anything to me. But now, as uh, as an immigrant here in, in from, America, from the UK, um, I, I <laughs> so what I think is it's just but you know that one wasn't bad, and the sequel was uh, Kenneth Johnson, as as I recall. But um, Badham is quite skilled, I think, at making these popcorn commercial broadly appealing movies but that do have a thematic weight uh, underneath them right um and uh I, I i've loved so many of his movies the stakeout movies as well mm -hmm. probably less kind of thematic uh, you know deep stuff going on but just great romps both of them super funny amazing chemistry the hard way is another one that i love with michael j fox and oh, never seen that one. Woods. Um, yeah, it's great. It's another great sort of slept-on action comedy buddy movie. Um, it's quite it's quite edgy and very funny satire of Hollywood. Uh, okay, because there he's like Michael J. Fox is a spoil plays a spoiled Hollywood star who gets partnered with a um, a, a sort of foul-mouthed, aggressive New York cop played by James Woods, and he's researching a character. And it's just it's hilarious. Love Woods. <laughs> it's That's awesome. It's amazing. I gotta see it. So anyway, yeah, Badham, um, yeah. Great. Yeah, this really guy. This guy's a, a dynamo. I mean, he's you know Saturday Night Fever. I guess was the his his breakout directorial. Um, but yeah, I mean his track record is so good. But honestly, just today looking at it, and you know obviously getting into the deep dive of Blue Thunder and just seeing the the analysis of technology, specifically either weapons mostly or security, and like what's the line between defense and offense? Mm. You know, and where and. Blue Thunder does it so well, you know, the top brass, Malcolm McDowell, um, was it Cochran, is his yes, name? Yes, yes. You know, who you hate immediately, yeah, you know, yeah, because yeah. he's like the rival because from the Vietnam. he's a filthy Brit. <laughs> <laughs> Don't trust him. Yeah. None of them, except for you, Phil. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, so like the top brass is already kind of, you're, you're critical of him and... Um, you know, Roy Scheider doesn't like him, and they have this history that you get in these little glimpses from these quick flashes, the flashbacks to the Vietnam War, and we immediately identify with the kind of everyman of Roy Scheider who's been through it, and and and, and analyzing 
basically the, the double-sided nature of commands and orders and how there's a desk and then there's a field. And mm. there's literally a scene when uh, Roy Scheider sits on, was it War Notes? Mm-hmm. I guess this was his last. The Captain Braddock, yeah. Yeah, Captain Braddock. He sits literally on his desk and he's like, get off my desk. Yeah. And for some reason that just hit me. That was the allegory just boiled down for me right there. You know, uh, the captain's not really the heavy or the, the, you know, the villain, but it was kind of the dynamic between, you know, this is my desk and you're out there in the field and there's a line there. But Roy Scheider has been in war and he's seen death and he's seen how weaponized, you know, technology plays out in, in the real world. So that's the kind of the, the line between the desk yeah. and the people who give the orders and then the people that are actually executing the orders yeah. and the crossfire they're in. I really thought this movie just explores that so it, it, it's well. Tr- yeah, it, it explores sort of, yeah, the hierarchical power in an interesting way. And one of the things, the other the other elements that I really love about this movie, and I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, there's so many things I love about it. One of, one of which is um, that relationship between Warren Oates and, and Roy Scheider, which I think is just so real as walking the line between two guys that respect each other, who are middle-aged men, and right. they're both police, you know, uh, personnel, but one of them is in, a, is in a power position and the other one isn't, but at the same time, their dynamic, is, he, it isn't the usual, like, um, you know, hairdryer police captain, you know, like, <laughs> in something like a great movie, 48 Hours, but that, that suddenly became a, a sort of stereotype. Trope. You know, and a trope of the yeah. genre. This is this just to me felt way more nuanced, um, yeah, and real. But the other point I was going to make to to your point about walking that line that I think is so interesting about this movie is that it's sort of an exploration of of heroism in an interesting way. Because for Roy Scheider's character Frank Murphy, um, he who is a uh, Vietnam vet, so he's been part of that mil- the military structure which is an extension of the government. Now he is part of the, the Astro Division, a police, a police officer, part of another state institution. Um, and for him to, uh, the journey he goes on to become a hero is doing the, the hardest, when, when doing the right thing is the hardest thing to do. And it means going against the institutions that you're part of. So as opposed to other action movies from this era, which typically I think are like, say, First Blood, which is really kind of probably the, the original uh, action movie of the of the kind of modern, uh, the modern era of, of movies. But if you think about movies like um, First Blood or, or Cobra or Commando or the Chuck Norris uh, type movies, essentially they're often about a, uh, a protagonist mowing down the other. Right, mm-hmm. like there's scores of people who are other than the protagonist. Whether bad they're guys. Ba- they're just yeah, they're just bad guys being slaughtered on mass, right? And in but in this movie, it's someone going against going instead of going the American flag going outwards as right. it were. It's going inwards. It's him taking on corrupt government. Um, you know, the police themselves, the, the, the Air Force toward, towards the end, and all of these, um, you know, the, these, these governmental structures um, at, at great personal cost and great personal sacrifice. And I think that places it in a very different um, context than a lot of the action movies of that, of that era. 
which I think is, is another reason why I think it's just such an interesting exploration of the nature of heroism. I love that. Yeah. Right. I mean, Roy Schotter could just kind of keep his head down and just be the cog in the, the cog in the machine and, and do, you know, the orders come in. But like you said, though, even the Warren Oates is like starting to feel just so stuck and he's got the brass down his yeah, neck. He's in the middle. He's in the middle and yeah. he's so caught. Yeah. And you're right. It's not the usual just like come into my, you know, come yeah. into my office. You guys have been too much and you got to, you got to, you got to tone it down, boys. You know, it's not like that dynamic. Like you just said, it's, he's like, oh man, you got to work with me. I'm just trying to do my best. I'm, I'm in the desk, but yeah, at some point you got to, you got to draw the line. Like what side are you really on? And, and Roy Scheider is just, he's just had enough. And then, you know, once Lyman Good, once Lyman Good gets yeah. whacked, I mean, you're just like, all right, these guys are evil. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he gets run over, and it's just its just terrible, because they they basically, using the Blue Thunder helicopter, they hear, because they can hear a fart at, what, 40, a rat fart? Was it a mouse? mouse fart 4,000 feet or something, he <laughs> yeah. says. That's a, that's a quote. Yeah, that's a good from quote from the, the, from the movie. And they hear this conversation that the bad guys are having in the, in the the you know, in the tower, and then... But then Malcolm McDowell sees that they're right there, and then that starts the whole thing of them being hunted down. And then we have to get this tape of the recording uh, to the right folks. So it's just like the moment where he's like, I have to do something about this. I, I can't lie down on this, mm-hmm. and I have to do it. And it's, it's risking my life. It's risking, you know, and then he, he gets his wife involved, risking her life. Um, but he just, he has to do this. And like you said, he's got to, he, he's chosen his path as the hero to stand up against these forces, which are internal. Mm-hmm. Um, there are corrupt conspiracy, you know, there's a conspiracy within the American government. There was an assassination that kind of gets the whole thing going on. Um, and they want to use this Blue Thunder helicopter because it can see and hear everything to suppress any mm-hmm. rebellion against their authority as this kind of corrupt conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and I think it's it's interesting that I feel like this is a film that, for the most part, and there is an except, there's a notable exception, but I think it's on the right side of history in that in that mm. regard. And you know, most of the movies of the Reagan eighties had this um, gleeful fetishism of military hardware. You know, we were in that era of rap military expansion, Star Wars, and yeah, and and again, Top Gun and and. Um, and then you know, Airwolf and things like that. The ripped, yeah, uh, rip, rip, it was sort of a rip. Oh, I mean, Star Wars, the actual laser-guided missile system, yes, not I the know. movie. Yes. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's yeah, because it was an era where America was trying to reassert um, its geopolitical dominance. I think after the uh, the humiliation of the Iran hostage crisis in 1980, that was sort of Carter's. Mm. Um, you know, that that uh, I think accelerated Jimmy Carter's demise. So America was sort of perceived being kind of weak and then you're moving to the Reagan era. Right, we got to step it up. It's now a little bit more like cocking the shotgun, you know, as a country and being like, let's go. And I think a lot of the movies at that time were were sort of a celebration of like, yeah, we're American, we're back. And, you know, so there was Don't mess with us. Yeah, exactly. There was a kind, and and they they talk about that at the the exercise sequence where they demonstrate Blue Thunder. There's, Mm. I think the character Iceland says something like, you know, well, we would only use this for our worst case scenario, but it's comforting to know you have it on tap. But immediately Roy Scheider, who, whose character Frank Murphy has been part of this apparatus in the Vietnam War as a, as a pilot, is immediately suspicious of this because he is the, the tool of these bureaucrats that never really see any action and pull the strings from 
from their desk. Say from it from their desk to your point, and he's immediately like, "This is not good." And he's a pilot who could could be taking the action of, "This is badass. This is awesome. I'm going to get to fly this thing." But his reaction is, "I don't know about this." And yeah. the other thing that I think is really interesting about that sequence with, um, where they demonstrate they first demonstrate the the Blue Thunder helicopter's capabilities at, mm -hmm. a, um, at a display where you know sort of all these suits and military guys sitting in the bleachers and they run a kind of uh, weapon scenario uh, test case where the Blue Thunder like takes out uh, you know red red uh, wooden terrorists and, and there's like wooden civilians and it's basically to sort of demonstrate like it the, part of the reason they do the Blue Thunder is because it was 83 and they thought in the 84 Olympics there might be um, urban unrest or potentially another Munich type situation like happened in the right. 70s so that they, they were looking for pre preventative anti-terrorism would they, uh, and they mentioned the Olympics in the and they specifically in the movie, yeah. Um, and they, yes, uh, and and they specifically um, mention that. But one of the things that I think is interesting about that sequence, which brings me to something else I wanted to mention, is the character. One of the the character, uh, one of the other um, suits there says uh, that they some of the some of the um, civilians get killed. Civilians in quotes during this training exercise. The white uh, the white wooden blocks, the white wooden uh, yeah, figures the, the that posters, are supposed to the represent cutouts. innocent yeah. civilians um, end up getting killed along with the, the terrorists in this in this training scenario. And he comments um, something like one one civilian to every 10 terror for every 10 terrorists. That's an acceptable ratio. Right. Um, very kind of matter of fact where and Roy Scheider says the Warren Oates like, well, not if you're one of the civilians. Yeah. Now, great line. It's very. This was very interesting to me because because some, the other thing I wanted to talk about today, because I've been doing a lot of research about about Die Hard. Now, if you remember in Die Hard, um, the FBI agents that come in literally say when they're when they're flying in on the helicopter towards the end of the movies, agents Johnson and Johnson, they talk about like the acceptable kill ratio for uh, civilians as long as they take out the terrorists. So in my research of, about Die Hard, which I've done a huge deep dive on for reasons we're, we're going to talk about, I read the original novel, which was written in, which is called Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, written in the late 70s. And there was a culture at the time, I think probably post the Munich, uh, that, that whole incident, and then some of the other terrorism fears that were going on around that time, there was literally a mantra uh, that was, in quotes, hang them at the airport. Meaning, if a terrorism, if it, if there's a terrorist incident, fucking take them all out there and then. And if you take out the civil, the hostages in the process, well, oh, tough well. shit. Because yeah. it it was almost like they wanted to um, that that kind of extreme response to, as a deterrent. Right. So this became a kind of um, th this was like a culturally understood. We don't idea. negotiate with terrorists. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, uh, but that is also like, you, of course, you could, you know, objectively, you can understand the logic of that. But it, but right. if you're a hostage and you're in that situation, what a crazy idea to be like. Well, you know, the hostage. You're a number now. Yeah, yeah. You're not you, a person. You lose your identity, which is yeah. which is state power at its most terrifying. Right. I think, to some to some extent. So this was a kind of cultural attitude that was going on in uh, seemingly in, in law enforcement or military and anti-terrorism. Um, th this was part of the attitude in that in that time, so it's it was interesting, and not many people I think were, were as questioning of it. But Die Hard um, is also a film a film that I think is very critical of 
state power. And almost yeah. every that is critical of the those rogue, reckless FBI agents and uh, the police, largely like the in, ineffectual police. Yeah, the their, bumbling, the, the SWAT team and yeah. the car, the armored car. And They're all no that. help. It's ultimately kind of um, emasculated. There's only Al Powell <laughs> that's like the one, and McLean, who are the, the sort of, again, only the sort power of beat, players. the beat kind of cops, as it were. Yeah, like right, the right, people, right. The, the beat cops, the, the, the everyman. The guys, yeah, the everyman characters. The Joes. Who are the tools of these institutions. Right. They're the only ones that are able to uh, function effectively uh, by not thinking, thinking as an individual and not as a, like the as ins- this machine. indoctrinated, in- institutionalized thinking. Yeah. So That's great. Um, I love that. It's just, yeah, they're the Joes that you can you you resonate with. You you like these guys because they're the they're you know they're they're every they're everyone. You see them you see yourself in the audience. You see yourselves and same with uh, Roy Scheider and, and Blue Thunder. You know you just like him and you know he's been through hell and he's been through the war and and he's having flashbacks and he's critical and you just like the guy. You know. It's also interesting that Roy Roy Scheider actually had Air Force experience and actually did some oh. of the. Uh, did some of the flying in the film. Um, so he he's an interesting figure, I think, again, for the, the sort of the cultural moment where this film came out because he was really a star of the 70s. You right. know, we think of, of Jaws, Jaws and a French connection, you know, yeah. a supporting role, and then he kind of became, you know, uh, a 70s lead. And to, he had a great career in, in the 80s up, up to a movie I absolutely love called 52 Pickup, where... Uh, which was one of his, I think, last great leading roles, and then he did a lot of great supporting roles. But this was, in in a way, I think, almost his uh, the apex of that moment of like carrying on the fame that he had in the seventies yeah. and like buttoning it perfectly. Of course, he did two thousand ten, the sequel to two thousand one. Oh, that next, was eighty four. Next year, yeah, which is one also an excellent film. Yeah, but more, I think, more a bit more of an ensemble. Peter Yates and um, Peter Hyams. Peter Hyams, uh, sorry, yes made that one confusing my peters um, yeah Scheider is such an interesting figure Ah, so good and I was thinking about you know the casting of um, uh, Malcolm McDowell as the uh, the colonel because it I was thinking you know there is the one thing that has that always sort of niggled me slightly about this about this movie was why would you cast a Brit as a US Army colonel Mm. who, who was who had fought in Vietnam and had been his Superior. I was. I. I was found that kind of like slightly strange, and I was sort of thinking, you know, and, and McDowell is awesome in the movie, but I was kind of thinking actor. like, well, I wonder who is there someone else that would have been more uh, appropriate? And I was thinking like in that time in 1983, like Tommy Lee Jones or William mm. Devane or someone like this. And I was sort of thinking about actors like that, and then I thought, no, the problem is they're too close to Scheider, right? If you uh, you so you need you need a foil. You need someone that is the complete is, is a contrast, is yeah. a complete opposite. You know, Malcolm McDowell is smaller. He's sort of de- devious. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he has a, a reptilian energy <laughs> to him. Um, you know, you just want to you just want to hit him in right. the best possible way. Like he's a brilliant villain. But uh, yeah. that was an in- that. So I kind of understood. It, it's one of those things that works dramatically, if not logically. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. in, in the casting because they're just totally different energies. Um, but it, 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 he's not what you would immediately think of as a U.S. Army colonel. But for the purposes of this film, it, 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 it works really well. Apparently, he was absolutely horrified to, to get in the, the helicopters. Yes. Yeah, he was like, he, he vomited apparently almost every time. 
Apparently he... Um, What's the story I read? That's right. He His agent had done a deal that he wasn't supposed to fly in any of the... Uh, in any of the scenes, but when he got on the set and he saw Scheider doing it and the other guys doing it, his, you know, the machismo kicks in and he just couldn't, he couldn't admit that he was afraid to do it, so he took to, be able to, to his hang. credit, he did it. Yeah. Um, but you can kind of see in some of the scenes that he's uh, he's pretty bug-eyed, especially in the finale. Yeah, I mean, it, it plays well for the dramatic circumstances yeah. of, the, of the scene. Yeah, yeah. It, but apparently that was like not He's very on. visceral, he's very oh, present yeah. because of that. Yeah. You know, he's not, he's, he's completely there you know so uh it, it does feel very very real you know you yeah. don't think he's you don't think he's in a cockpit in a green screen is what i mean no you not know, at you, all you definitely feel the sense of like he, they're really doing this stuff yeah you know, for, for a large part of it they actually were right and that's kind of great that it all has to culminate in a in a big aerial battle yeah and and by the by so you know the this movie moves to a third act that i would put against any action oh. film Perfect. Ever made. Literally. Just perfect. Like the last four, and it's a long third act. It's about 40, 35, 40 minutes, I think. But yeah, just the, past the hour markish. Yeah, the film is sort of in, interestingly structured because the first half is more set up and character development, and then uh, then the conspiracy plot kind of escalates, and then it becomes the kind the, the final showdown where Frank Murphy, uh, Roy Scheider's character, takes takes the blue thunder, goes rogue. Um, and uh, and then all hell breaks loose, and then Cochrane, played by McDowell, come, comes, comes after him, him, along with the might of the U.S. Air Force, the two F-16s, and 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 the LAPD, and I just think the Metropolitan well, Police, right? Because yeah. technically they're not the LAPD, because the Astro Division is is technically not the correct name. But yeah, they never actually say LAPD um, like famously yeah, they didn't in the movie. Want it said apparently, they didn't right? Want, even though they were actually quite supportive of the, of the yeah, film, apparently. But if you look at this sequence, particularly like the LA river um, pursuit where there's a LAPD in quotes uh, police a bell helicopter pursuing the, the blue thunder through the LA river you know I think about films like ambulance recently oh yeah you recommended a, that one it was awesome amazing sequence in the LA river with two helicopters pursuing amazing. the the ambulance um, of course Terminator 2 has a classic chase through the LA river and a classic helicopter chase so I, and there's also a signature shot at the beginning where the first time the Blue Thunder is introduced and you, it's backlit against a setting sun. And to me, that's mm. like, Mike, that's Michael Bay all over. Oh yeah. And I feel like this film was, was also very influential on people like Michael Bay and James Cameron and Tony Scott, you know, and this, if you look at this particular sequence, uh, this, this incredible third act uh, in camera, Helicopters dueling over Los Angeles, you know, it, it's some of the most exhilarating action filmmaking you will ever see. It's and unbelievable. you can see echoes of subsequent iconic action sequences um, that this, you know, that came from that, I think, you know. Absolutely. It's definitely woven into the DNA. And I, I, I yeah, I can't believe that it's not in the conversation more. Now, having not of course, being aware of it. Of course, this will all change that. Yes. <laughs> After today, no one think yeah. twice on no one will sleep on blue thunder again it's um i also want to say that the wife played by candy clark is not your damsel in distress at all she is you can really believe that she has been with this guy and is such a badass and and jumps to action she has the tape that she has to ferry to the right to the forces of good before they can be you know destroyed and they have the truth on this tape um 
that Daniel Stern has hidden in a, in a dumpster. And she is so good in this, and she just jumps to it and throws herself into the peril. And the intercutting between what's going on on the ground with her, and then the stuff in the sky, and then the forces barreling down on them, is just, like you said, that third act, is, which is long, like you said, it's just unbelievable. And I almost think this movie might have a little too much setup, but both times I've watched that, I've had that thought for a second, and then I feel like I have that thought two seconds before the third act. Yeah. And then by the end of the third act, you're like, oh my God. I know exactly what you mean. It's pure action. There is a section in in this sort of the mid, around the midpoint of the film where it is a little, uh, a little slower. Yeah. But then. But it all pays off. It all pays off. It all pays off. I don't think there's anything you can cut. But I completely agree with you about the cut. I wouldn't cut a thing. No. This, it's, it's too well, um, it's, it's too well designed. Uh, from you know plot mechanic standpoint, to, to but it, it is atypical, and I and I did get to sit in on your screenwriting course oh, a few yes. months ago, yeah, which yeah. was so awesome. And you're such a, I was, I'm still so blown away. I, I still have Thank the notes, you. and you talk about how like every scene has to have that conflict, and and every scene, and obviously learn the rules so you can then break the rules, but break them well. And I don't think the the big finale would have the gravitas and weight. I mean, obviously the shots are the shots, and they're beautiful, but. Dramatically, it would not have any of the meaning and value if it didn't set up all the things we talked about between the brass and then the cops and the people that are in the middle and then the pilots and learning about what they do and kind of their route and their beat, you know, and it's Daniel Stern and, uh, you know, Roy Scheider just flying around in the helicopter in the beginning and then they get the Blue Thunder and then it's like learning that and being in that and as an audience becoming familiar with the technology of, of Blue Thunder so I don't think anything would, would culminate and crescendo properly if we didn't have those elements. But both times I'm watching this movie, I literally was like, okay, it's getting a little, like, mm. all right. But then, boom. Yeah. But there's another movie that does that perfectly, and it's Jurassic Park. Mm. And if you actually look at Jurassic Park, it's a lot of talk. It's a lot of, and again, back to Crichton, you know, you have your message, and then you give them the, you wow them. Mm. Um, and then by the end of the movie, you're like, that was just two hours of, of non-stop action. You forget yeah, almost. perfectly constructed. I, I wanted to just pick up on your point about the, the Candy Clark character because that is the other piece of this that makes me truly love this movie and why I think it is, for the most part, uh, on the right side of history and quite a progressive film. I, wanna, I want to um, uh, temper that by saying there is a couple of sequences where that literally define the male gaze in the sense of uh, the two yeah. characters, uh, you know, looking at naked naked yoga and using their um, position, in, you know, in the helicopter to to look at uh, to you know to sort of objectify women. So in that that side of it, and they pay the they sort of pay a price for that, um, and uh, they're they're hauled over the coals for it. But that side of it, I think, probably hasn't aged uh, quite so well right. in, in in you know for the twenty first century. But what I do think is really notable about what you were saying is that most films of this time, a lot of action films of this time, tend to be, as you say, in the third act, the bad guys kidnap the hero's wife, girlfriend, daughter, whatever. Um, and the, the female characters are very often rendered dramatically inert and passive. Um, and that's it, it, that's a sort of um, I think quite a sexist uh, trope that yeah. uh, many of the movies of that time uh, had, and it goes back you know to, to the beginning of film 
the, the damsel in distress or beginning of storytelling even but it i think in the modern era that is um kind of just icky and gross and it's just we've kind of moved beyond that yeah and what i love about this uh, candy, candy clark character kate is that she is totally dramatically active and as courageous Absolutely. if not more than uh, than frank murphy uh, yeah. uh you know the hero and, and the two of them are working together yeah she's on the ground and he's the air he's support in, he's the air support yeah and they work oh, it's so good. but i love the way that their relationship is so beautifully drawn because it's really dysfunctional they're like on again off again right. she has a kid that doesn't seem to be his we you know yeah i was um, gonna ask you she seems was... like a single mother with this kid but he has a relationship with the kid you know they clearly kind of get along and he fell asleep in the know. room and the... yeah and they're close but um uh, but what I love about it is they're both kind of crazy, it, and they're both like messed up people. Right. But and 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 so when she decides to say like fuck it, ride or die, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna do this. It makes you buy it. It whereas a normal right. quote normal person that was maybe a bit less because she establishes quite a reckless, wild character. There's a, there's a, and this is done in, a, in it's very skillfully to the point about the setup in a sequence where they go to Griffith Park and uh, to take the kid on the on the uh, like the toy train that's there the train the, the train that runs the, that's for kids that runs around the little track there and it, it, it's another thing that I love about the movie because it's actually accurate to LA geography because that that's right by where I live and I take my son there oh yeah train. right 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 and it is one way it's a it's a one way street around that area in Griffith Park and what Candy Clark's character does, she misses the turn for the train, which is very easily done, because um, I've done it many times. You're like, I've missed that same yeah. turn. And uh, and she just say, uh, turns the car around and goes against traffic, one-way traffic, and it's it's a crazy, reckless, nutty thing to do. But it establishes that her character is willing but to tracks. do those things right. later on, and is, is, is kind of reckless, and is kind of wild, and is kind of crazy, but it's also loyal and knows right from wrong mm -hmm. and is like push comes to shove is ride or die for for the man that she loves and for you know these values that are established in the film which is you know there is she knows the difference between right and wrong and justice and what is you know the right thing to do um and it just pays off so well and it's just that is such a refreshing character to see in in a, in a time where you know there was a lot of there wasn't a ton of amongst amazing, its peers um, yeah, a little you know uh, female characters in action movies you know, right of course, that that got, went on to change i think with sarah connor and, and ripley and yeah you know, james cameron um, being a big proponent of there, there are females. there are certainly there are certainly exceptions but i think you know for the most part it probably wasn't wasn't the most progressive in its time in that in in that regard and this is just one of the most awesome characters and mm. i think she's fantastic she's so good she's so sparky she and kills she it just she just lights up the screen. She's so interesting and quirky and real. And I, I think their relationship is so cool just because, because it's a mess. It's, yeah. It's a, and it feels real. It feels textured yeah. and real. Life is a mess. Yeah. You know, we're, we're all hanging on. <laughs> yeah. We're all hanging on for dear yeah. life. We're trying to balance our jobs with our yeah. home life. And, you know, yeah, and it, it is messy. And we all, I think every human being has a degree of PTSD. You know, we didn't all fight in the Vietnam yeah. War, but... You know, well, life is, now, is like hard. Post, you know, post uh, the pandemic. Oh, people, yeah. 
we've all lived through. I mean, you know, it would be churlish to compare it to actual, um, you know, the PTSD that's featured in, in this film with, with um, you know, trauma that's accrued in, in warfare. Um, but nonetheless, I think on a, on a, on a it's different a way, you know, we are, we, yeah, and, and a lot of people have their own version of that. Right. Uh, that they have to live with on a daily basis. And it was, again, I think that's another thing, the PTSD element of this, something that wasn't largely as, as understood um, in that time. Of course, the year before there'd been First Blood, which also directly explores uh, a character with the hero with Post PTSD and, and right. explores it in pretty direct way, similar with similar like flashbacks to some of the torture that, yeah. that John Rambo faced, and mm -hmm. uh, which is similar to some of the things that, that Shia witnesses in this film. Um, War, which is actually a war crime, and uh, yeah, so that I think again is something that was we were starting to understand as a society, you know, the, the nature of PTSD. And this film touches on that, so it, it's just to me, for the most part, it's pretty kind of ahead of the curve, yeah, in a really cool way. And so many, and this is also, you know, there's all these deep, uh, you know, cultural interpretations. This is taken aside the fact that. Switch your brain off completely, and it's the most kick-ass, fucking exhilarating action movie it's a romp. you'll ever see. Yeah, but there's also a bit more to it. But it's it's it. not just that, you know. You know, I mean, and in any in any genre across the board, if the character work isn't there, then the dramatic tension is not there. It doesn't matter how many cool explosions you have, but if you really, really like here, you really, really want Roy to prevail yeah. and Candy Clark, yeah. and you want. It's you, edge of the seat. You're like, oh right? my god, please get out of this, you know. And sure, he's got blue thunder, but he's still outnumbered, ten to one, mm -hmm. you know. And the forces are just barreling down on him. And so many things have to happen correctly, and then the tape has to get out. Um, and yeah, I mean, you just care so much. And like in a horror, you're not going to be on the edge of your seat if you don't care about these characters. Yeah. So you can have torture porn films yeah. that are just gory. And gross, and sure, that there's an element of that. I, you know, I love, I love a good gore scene. You know, I, I'm a big fan of gore in movies. But if you don't care about the character that's being attacked or whatever, then it loses a lot of the emotional weight, and that goes across every genre. Well, we talked about that the quote that I love that's become a sort of, uh, you know, uh, a tenet for me. That was a Stephen King quote that we talked about when, in, in the previous episode. When we talked about the fog, where he said, "I tried to create sympathy for my characters." then turn the monsters loose. Yes. In this instance, the monsters are these institutions and the government and right. the, the, the military hardware and all the rest of it. Right. Um, so it, it kind of, he's speaking specifically about, about horror, but I think it, it applies yeah. to, you know, mo most genres. Yeah. And really storytelling in general. Storytelling, you know, in, yeah. In, you know, it probably apply, applies to almost every story, that, that principle. So yeah, and this is a great that, and that's why you need that slightly slower first half. Although there's still some amazing action sequences in that first oh, yeah. half, but it is all developing those relationships. The relationship between Frank Murphy and Braddock, his boss. The relationship between him and uh, Lyman Good, his protege. The relationship with him and his on again, off again girlfriend, uh, Kate, uh, and all of these different you know things that are going on. His relationship with his nemesis, uh, Cochran. Um, and uh, yeah, you need all of those things because boy, does it pay it off. It all pays off. And the way this movie crescendos and the powder keg of it, it's a masterclass in action and, and in storytelling in general. Um, have you always gravitated towards action as a, as, a screen, <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a lover of movies and as a screenwriter? I have, yeah. I mean, you know, going, yeah, going back to when I was a kid, the, the cool thing was I grew up 
as a child of the 80s in what was the ushering in the golden age of action cinema mm-hmm. you know, which was which i would say was really the 80s and the 90s and nowadays we still have some great action movies like we've just talked about like ambulance and and top gun maverick and they're still um, you know they're still making them, but in in though in that era they were they were there were so many I think high quality um, action movies. The golden age, if you were. Yeah, definitely yeah. a golden age. So yes, I've always been a big action aficionado. Yeah, was there? I'm I'm always interested in kind of the origin stories. Like for Phil Gawthorn, was there a moment where you saw an action movie, and you were just like, I want to create this, or I want to be part of this well certainly the one that springs to mind that i watched the most by far in terms of a straight action movie as a kid was die hard mm. you know and Masterpiece. i think that yeah and that te- you know over the dozens and dozens of viewings that i had every every christmas um that taught me i think you know i sort of uh subconsciously absorbed all of those lessons that because that is mm. a masterpiece i think you know Blue Thunder, I think, is is um, a slightly flawed, almost masterpiece. Whereas Die, Die Hard is a legit perfect yeah. movie, you know, um, in, in in every perfect every marks way. across the board. Yeah, there's yeah. not there's nothing you can fault about it. There's not one moment that could be cut. There's not one one setup that doesn't pay off. Mm. Uh, everything about it to me is total perfection. So that the best villain probably standard. in anything. The best maybe, villain. You know. In action movie cinema, arguably the best villain in, Ever. in any movie, period. <laughs> yeah. You know, legit. Yeah. So, Alan Rickman, R.I.P. Missing. Yeah. But that that was his first movie. Yeah. Yeah. What? How? Yeah. How? Incredible. And it's another thing, you know, um, I mean, we can, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today was to talk about my the podcast yes. that I I think it's a good transition uh, here because uh, it is diehard. Yeah, DNA. so it would seem silly to not bring it up. Um, so uh, I have um, I conceived and I co-host a new podcast called Die Hard on a Blank, uh, which is being produced by Sugar Twenty Three, and it comes out on um, December twenty first, and will be available on all platforms. Apple, Spotify, Audible, iHeart, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And in the first two episodes, we do a super deep dive on the original Die Hard. We do it. We're doing a two-part episode. First of all, we talk through um, the movie. I should say, when I say we, I mean my incredible co-host Liam Billingham, who is he was a very experienced and brilliant uh, podcaster. Has his own podcast called. Oeuvre Busters, and now it's called Romare Cast, and it's about the French filmmaker Eric Romare. Um, and uh, he's a delightful human being and a, a you know an amazing cinephile with an incredibly deep well of knowledge. And um, we we hit it off, and we met, and it was just the perfect chemistry to do this show. Um, so the first two episodes are are as going. We we talk through every scene of Die Hard in detail, and then in the second episode we talk about the origins of Die Hard, which includes the Frank Sinatra movie, The Detective, um, and uh, The Towering Inferno, mm. um, and the original source material, the book by Roderick Thorpe, Nothing Lasts Forever, that Nothing Lasts Forever, yeah. earlier, that we talk about the differences and the similarities, and everything that led up to um, to Die Hard. And then to your point about like the perfect marks, we, we, we go through, um, I've created this sort of system called uh, Anatomy of an Action Movie, and we go through, we look at like, Hero, villain um the premise 
uh, ticking clock um, and uh, the action itself and also the humor, which I think is often uh, is an important part Such of, a huge part of, uh, of, of action cinema. You, you know, Blue Thunder has some some really funny moments and funny lines. Um, so, yeah, that that uh, the, the 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 central conceit of the podcast as a whole beyond beyond the first two episodes is that it's an exploration of uh, the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. So we're mm. going to trace that what we call this Die Hard DNA as it evolves and changes. And of course, we call it Die Hard on a Blank because that is the cultural shorthand for any film that uh, tries to replicate that very particular storytelling formula of bad guys take over a blank bus, you know, boat, uh, plane, what have you. Okay, let's hear the trailer. Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar 23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard... Ooh, very nice. ...then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Oh, God, it's so good. Even the trailer, I can't stop listening to it. It's so good. You guys are so, I mean, just from that one minute trailer, you two are just awesome together oh, already. Oh, that's so cool to hear because, uh, thank you. I love you. it. Uh, you know, it is one of those things where uh, when you just hit it off with someone, and like like you and I did, which is kind of rare sometimes later, later in life. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, because often you're, you're, we're in our little silos and you don't often meet people. Yeah, that you're, we're kind of set uh, in our ways. <laughs> but, you know, when you meet other cinephiles that are as crazily, weirdly, esoteric, obsessed, obsessed with all of this shit like yeah. you and I are, uh, and, and Liam is the same way, then it, it is like finding a kindred spirit. And very quickly we, we did find that we had this, you know, I, I think hopefully a... Uh, a great chemistry and it's one of those I, I feel the same way like with you where it's like you could have a conversation preferably with a whiskey in hand that could last for two three hours about a movie or a particular series of movies or what have you and just be like so interested to pick this person's brain and what's your opinion yeah about really this? get under there because you're truly fascinated mm -hmm. by everyone comes to this stuff bringing their own uh, you know, trajectory in life and, and their own, you know, cultural references, their own background, all of those things that make make us unique and individual. So, and then when they intersect to discuss a piece of art, a piece of cinema, uh, they're bringing all that to the table as well. And I think that makes, you know, when you meet someone like that that you truly kind of click with and you truly love their company, it makes hopefully for what will be a, uh, a you know, really, really fun discussions. And the vibe of the show is very like, you know, uh, 
uh, inviting, we hope, and we take the subject seriously, but we kind of don't take ourselves too seriously. Play, playing in the sandbox. Yeah, it's just, we're just, we're having fun and, you know, talking about stuff that we love um, in, in a passionate way. And we also have fun things like, um, we, we give out awards for these movies that are diehard themed. So <laughs> maybe it. we should do this for this one as a fun uh, as a fun exercise if you're if you're up for it. Yeah, um, absolutely. So we do. We the first one is the uh, the Yippie Kaye Award for best quip. <laughs> so what, uh, the best zinger or the best you know the best. Oh, um, I gotta say when dialogue. when Roy Scheider blows away uh, the, the helicopter at the end and he says "see you later" in points. Uh, finger points. I mean, that that got me Pretty so satisfying. hard. That I mean, for Actually, me that would be it. Yeah, for me that would be the Yippie But I mean, I don't know. What, yeah, that's what true. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, that is. I mean, it's full of. Yeah, it's full of. It, it, it's full of good stuff. But yeah, that is probably the certainly the most iconic line. I wouldn't disagree with that. It's it, it's Malcolm McDowell's catchphrase throughout the film is going "Catch you later." And yeah, then, of course, turning it on his it, head it's, and it's buttoned at the end. And, and it's like it's obvious, but it's all sometimes it's like it's just a fucking bullseye. Even though it is obvious, he's gonna say it. You're like, fuck yeah. Yeah, like you can't you know? wait. For him yeah, to say it. It's awesome. So I, I would say that couldn't agree more. Perfect uh, example. Our, the second award we give out is um, the the Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for stealing the movie. So oh. this is given to a supporting actor uh, that uh, delivers the most memorable performance, or is like the low key, uh, you know, scene stealer or low key stole, hero. Stole steals the movie, and there's quite a few candidates in. Yeah, um, I, I gotta go Candy Clark. She just, I, again, I mean, we talked about it yeah. earlier, and just she just steals your heart by the end. Yeah. And you don't, you don't, like, like, you nailed it, that you don't question her ride or die, turn the jets on. There's a little bit of unhinged mania behind her eyes where you don't question her going into opposing traffic and, and just taking the, the task at hand by the, by the reins and, and, and attacking and yeah, I, I just I just love that she's so atypical female, um, as you said to the contemporary peers of the time of this era, you know. And she just nails it. Yeah, I couldn't 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 disagree. I I, I think Warren Oates would be nominated for me. For He's sure. amazing. Danny Stern uh, too, but yeah. Um, and I truly, truly love Warren Oates in this movie, and, and of course, he the movie's dedicated to him. And he, yeah, he passed away before it released, shortly, right? Shortly oh, after, man, that has another layer to it for sure. Wonderful actor, so his offbeat cadence and his um, just the way he could imbue this somewhat stock character mm -hmm. with so much life, so much humanity, personality, and idiosyncrasies. Absolutely yeah. wonderful actor, but I I do agree that Candy Clark is just phenomenal in this just movie. scene so stealing I, I totally agree and the last uh the, the, one of the awards that we do is um is the best death oh. which is suits you know for for action for an action movie um analysis um is a fun one to discuss yeah um i gotta say i forgot that daniel stern just gets run over by that car and it's so heartbreaking to see him just get crushed by that car interestingly on the commentary john Baden was saying like uh he regretted doing that because the oh. audience i think really you know danny stern at that age and is, is uh pretty young young so likable yeah the character is so likable he's just got a real light touch and you know what was it Joppo? just another what jaffo yeah. jaffo 
just another fucking observer. Just another fucking observer. Um, that's his, uh, his his nickname in the film. So uh, he was actually saying, I think the audience responded so well to his character and stuff that he felt he should have just been maybe hospitalized and not uh, and not killed because mm. it kind of bombed the audience out. So it was interesting that he had some some regret about that because it's quite a grisly. Um, it's a grisly gr- demise grisly for sure. Sequence. But I feel like that for me gives you the dramatic push to be like, all right, these guys are these guys are just pure evil and they're willing to just yeah. snuff out any these guys will go to any length stakes it raises yeah. the stakes for like you said that last 45 yeah. minutes of yeah it's, like these guys are just gonna kill you they, they don't they don't care yeah they're just gonna ice you and they don't give a fuck so revenge, so to me it works it's also yeah it, it motivates shider's character um to yeah. go that extra mile to stick it to these fuckos yeah and then it's dramatically like get these guys man yeah, yeah i mean daniel stern is the, the he's the He's the everyman. He's and he's funny. He's great. You see yourself in him. He's he nails it. Um, he has love, a kind of innocence in this. He's an innocence to him, the, you know, a sweetness to him. Yes. Yeah. Um, that yeah, it, it just works really. really Even well. as Marvin Home Alone, I mean, sure he's a, a shitty bandit, but. <laughs> He's just he's just likable. He's just likable. Even you know? even when he plays like a shitty character like in Diner, there's just something he's yes. so interesting to watch. Yeah. You know, and he does have a, a, a kind of low key humanity about him that's just You know what's also weird I was thinking about Daniel Stern is uh there's two movies where he's been violently run over. Uh very bad things. He's also Oh my god, right. Yeah. Ninety eight, ninety nine, what was um, that? You know, so that, that was just a kind of weird, huh. weird I did not thing. put that like, together. How many actors have been badly run over? Yeah, he's like, oh, I know, I know how to do this, guys. I, I was in Blue Thunder. both of them are over. really, like, graphic and yeah. sort of upsetting. But that's by the by. So... How, what, what about for you? Well, for me, it's it's the ending. It's, as you said, it's cop, cop you know, when... Yeah, when Cochran gets it. pulls the, the, the sort of 360 loop and, you know, and then takes out Cochran... Uh, it's uh, with buttoning with the line, catch you later. Catch you later. Um, and the finger point. It's just uh, like, it's so, it's so satisfying. You know, it's such a satisfying movie and it's such a satisfying finale. Um, so yeah. for me, uh, I would have to go with uh, with that in this in this instance. But this, this is the kind of... What's the, the award again? Of, Sorry. There's Best Death. Best Death, it's presented okay. Presented by Mark... We call it like presented by Marco, who is the character, because Liam is a huge fan of the... the, the t- we play also sometimes play a game called, uh, like, Who's Your Favorite Terrorist? Okay. <laughs> so, like, yeah, yeah. In Die Hard, you've got quite a few, uh, quite a colorful list of characters to, to choose from, but there was a character called Marco... Who is the one who is who uh, goes? Uh, no more table. Where are you going, pal? <laughs> Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. And then of course McLean blows him away from under the table with the zinger. Thanks for the advice. So are you going to uh, do a whole episode as Marco? <laughs> well, Liam's obsessed with Marco. Because your voice is nailed it. <laughs> so uh, okay, he he's, he might uh, pick it. He's a big he's a, he's a big Marco guy. Uh, I'm a big Fritz guy myself. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Fritz. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's the kind of yeah, this is the kind of sh- this is the kind of shit we do on the show. Oh, I can't wait fun. for your show, man. Yeah. So December twenty first, Die Hard on a Blank. Wherever you find your podcast, you can subscribe and follow. Um, and please, you know, come come to the party. Join the party. Absolutely. The Christmas party. The Christmas party. Tell me exactly. Tower. Exactly. So so I guess you will have to do films that come after Die Hard. Yes, exactly. So you know. 
my my vision for the show is to actually go chronologically. Okay. So we go uh, based on release date, mm -hmm. and my so my vision ultimately is that in its totality at the end of the show we'll have a kind of comprehensive look at the you'll be able to literally track how this diehard DNA the pedigree evolved mutated how yeah. other films like say Speed Die Hard on a Bus then uh, became its own formula that was replicated with films like Unstoppable or Ambulance, how John McTiernan mm. um, started the franchise of Hunt for Red, the, the Jack Ryan franchise with Hunt for Red October, which then evolved into its own thing with Patriot Games. It's on danger. So, so yeah. sort of how, how it had all of these offshoots, almost like we, we call it kind of like action movie genealogy. So we'll be going through and tracking all of these different um, trends because sometimes the diehard DNA um, is about it isn't as obvious as the premise itself is is a direct diehard scenario sometimes that the way that the dna seeps in uh is a little bit more subtle for example one of the films on the list is uh licensed to kill uh the 1989 timothy dalton oh bond yeah the bond movie, movie which features, is very much the oddball uh, very much an outlier in the bond canon absolutely it, it, one of the it features the same composer as Die Hard. Uh, oh. Two of the actors that we mentioned earlier, the two FBI agents, oh, sure. uh, Johnson and Johnson. Robert Davi plays the villain, and Grandel Bush plays a DEA agent. So um, there's all kinds of oh. ways that Die Hard uh, influenced the action genre uh, beyond the obvious Die Hard. Even on franchises that, that predate, even, yeah, 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 like, exactly. like Bond. Yeah. You know, I think uh, the Bond, Bond was responding there to the Bond franchises, responding to the Joel Silver trend of the mm. time. Right. They have Joel Silver's composer, Michael Kamen. Uh, it's shot in a very glossy uh, way. It's it's a very violent. It's one it's of those so violent, bloody, dark, darkest uh, one. Of, films. Definitely the dark. Probably the. I mean, I'd have to think of it. There's so many, but uh, definitely one of the darkest. And bonds. it's also largely set in America, which is mm. uh, is different. But the very look different. of the film and the sound of the film, right. and everything feels very much a response to the kind of Joel Silver brand that was, um, you know perfected with uh, Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. Right. Kind of like Quantum of Solace responding to Bourne identity, kind of yeah. taking the cutting speed. Yeah, exactly. And, that's a, and we talk about the Bournes. And, yeah. You know, again, which it's a I conversation. Is, the Bourne is arguably an evolution of Jack Ryan, you know, to some to some extent. Sure. It's making Jack Ryan more, more visceral, um, more, you know, the, there's more emphasis on the physicality of the character right. than with, with Jack Ryan. Um, he's a lethal killing machine. But of course, the... the you know the Bourne movies. There was a they date to the back to the Ludland books, and and there was a Bourne identity movie made in the seventies. So all of these, it's all kind of cyclical in an interesting in an interesting way. And I'm fascinated by this. This is great. By this stuff. I you know I, I literally the making of the list. I kind of got obsessed with it and looking nice. at the patterns and you know I, I I don't know. I'm just kind of weird like that. But I'm so passionate about uh, action movies, and I think action movies are. As we we're talking about with Blue Thunder, culturally, then we sometimes maybe think of them as somewhat lesser or less prestigious or less important. Or, but the truly great ones are these amazing time capsules that are an you know an encapsulation of the zeitgeist and have something to say that it, it, it you know especially in the case of Blue Thunder um, and many of the other films that we discussed, they have something to say about our society Absolutely. or about and about that moment in time when they were made um, I love so that. you know i i love it i love doing it and i'm grateful for you having me back on the show to give a chance to to let 
more people. Oh my gosh, yeah. About Die Hard on a Blank. Die Hard on a Blank. Uh, by the time this episode airs, I believe it will already be out. So please check it out. I can't wait to check it out. Thank I'm you. so excited. We'll I know have to you've get been... you on the show. We'll have to get oh you on the God, show. I would be so honored. Yeah, yeah. I would yeah. love that. Yeah. That'd be so cool. We'll make it happen of the era. Absolutely. Phil. Yes, sir. I love podcasting with you. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I love, you know, it's great to I love be you, man. here. And uh, you're the best, Andy. Thank you so much for having me, you know, for letting me gab and... Uh, oh my god gab as know. in just make amazing point after amazing <laughs> point is that what you mean <laughs> oh you know that's very kind of you uh, I, you know i guess when i get going I, I just you know i'm super grateful to be back here it's you know you had me on in the first show which was a real real special honor started it all and it's it's lovely to be back so thank you for the opportunity to come in and, and shoot the shit thanks for coming brother